Hey everyone, it's Matt here with an interview with Sebastian Bay. I'll let Sebastian do the whole introduction and rundown of his credentials, all those things. But if you're unfamiliar with Sebastian, he's an individual who eats, sleeps, and drinks war games, both as a professional in the professional wargaming sphere, as a hobby, and as a mentor to students at Georgetown and the uh, Naval Academy. I really enjoyed this interview with Sebastian. I think the energy he brings to wargame design and just enjoying the hobby is really infectious. Uh, his passion comes through. I really think he's passionate about a lot of different topics and that comes up in the hot seat as he took me down a whole bunch of trails I didn't uh, foresee us going down. I had a lot of fun recording this one. It's just great to sit back and listen to Sebastian talk about the things he has tons of energy for. So I hope you enjoy this one. Sebastian, thanks, thanks so much for doing this. No, I'm happy to, man. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think just in case... Our listeners don't know who you are. I I think when I think of someone who like eats, sleeps, and drinks war games, you really you really are someone. Like you have three professions that are all based around war games. Am I wrong? Um. Yeah. Yes. Uh. So a little introduction to myself. I am uh, a research analyst and war game designer at the Center for Naval Analysis, also known as CNA. Uh, so that means I design professional war games, both for education and analysis for the Department of Navy and Marine Corps predominantly, but we also do it for other DOD clients. Um, my other careers also include teaching at Georgetown University's Security Studies Program and also teaching a war game design course at the U.S. Naval Academy. And on top of that, you are designing your own war game. Yes, I am designing my own war game, which is a, a sort of pet project called Fleet Marine Force, also known as FMF. And that's honestly consumed uh, a lot of the oxygen in, in my life recently and caused a lot of late nights. But it's, it's a pet project I love, and I started during COVID, and it has exploded far beyond what I anticipated it would ever be. I started off with thinking, oh, this would be a cool little pandemic project because I can't bake bread. And apparently there's no yeast anywhere during the first year of the pandemic. And I was like, I'll design this game I've always wanted to do. And it just is just exploded. You know, I picked up the banjo when I couldn't get yeast. So I honestly, I'm, I tried to play the ukulele actually in the first early months as well. And I am terribly musically disinclined. I'm like really bad. Um, and I ne nevertheless, throughout my life, I've always tried to find some instrument as if like there's one instrument out there that I can find and be good at. And it has not been the case. <laughs> well, maybe next pandemic. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Or you know, I mean, pandemic year four or five at this mm -hmm. rate. Sure. Sure. Uh, well, so just one more thing on your resume, and if I miss anything, let me know, but you're also the uh, faculty sponsor for Goose, uh, Georgetown Wargaming Society, correct? Yeah, so that's sort of an extension of my work and course that I do called Basics of Wargaming, which is a graduate level course at the Security Studies Program where I teach students how to design educational wargames. And Goose um, is really an extension of that effort where students uh, on campus, both undergrad and graduate students, engage uh, on professional wargaming through commercial titles, through webinar series that we run uh, bi-weekly now, but also with other workshops and skills. And we try to do collaborations with our other organizations, both civilian and military. So we do partnerships with like Marine Corps University and so forth. I have this whole section about like, hey, tell me about your other hobbies. But I, like, I think we can just drop all of that. 
um, because I, I just don't see how you, you have time for it. <laughs> so I do have a couple other t- hobbies beyond playing games and designing games. Um, I'm a big avid reader. I love reading. Um, I Whenever the pandemic uh, stops, I, I tend to go back to rock climbing. I'm a big bouldering po- person. Nice. Okay. Uh, back in California, back in the sunny uh, coast, I used to do a lot more surfing and diving, but not so much here in D.C. But I mean, maybe one day I'll get back to get to retire in Hawaii and surf again. Yeah, so so where's the b- best place to go bouldering? Uh, so I grew up in our, or I grew up as a uh, rock climber during my college years, where I really discovered it, and I love to boulder like Big Sur, Yosemite, any of the national parks in California. They're absolutely gorgeous. I'm a big fan of the national parks in America. Oh yeah, I, we're spoiled with. So I'm from. I live on the Missouri side of uh, Kansas City. Is like in Missouri, but a lot of people live on Kansas. It's a, it's a whole thing. I live on the Missouri side and uh, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. Missouri has great state parks, but uh, my wife and I are huge national parks fans. And uh, we just went to, have you ever been to Ho Rainforest? I have not. It's on my list. Um, and it's, you know, there's so many national parks and great state parks. And like I yeah. discovered Utah a few years back and like Zion and all that. Uh, and like uh, Moab, which are fantastic parks uh, that I wish I could spend more time in. Um, it's gorgeous. Well, uh, speaking of growing up, I think uh, the most natural place to start is is the beginning. And I guess for our listeners, the the beginning of Wargaming. I guess where did this passion start? Was it... Was it professionally based from the get-go, or was it a hobby of yours, and then you've managed to turn this interest into a profession? So, like most professional wargamers in the DoD community, uh, I grew up as a commercial game, uh, like, hobby gamer, right? Where I grew up on titles on Avalon and MMP and GMT and, you know what I mean, the old school, uh, like, risk and access and allies and stuff like that as a kid all through my teen years and into my time in the marine corps as an enlisted uh marine in the infantry and honestly i did not know this was a job you could have in my field like i wish someone told me like hey you can do wargaming and uh design games for the duty like no one told me that right i like fell into it um so i went your typical sort of like political science, security studies route uh, in terms of education. And I wanted to be, actually, I, I came to D.C. for grad school coming to think I would be a foreign service officer. And obviously I am not. <laughs> um, but I fell into war game design uh, job at uh, the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and their wargaming division down at Marine Corps Base Quantico, uh, just a f- uh, 50 miles south of D.C. And I loved that job. I learned how to do professional wargaming there. And it was you know, eye-opening. And I was like, oh my God, I found the job that I've always wanted and never knew I wanted, right? And then I went to RAN, uh, which is another um, think tank uh, where I did a lot of wargaming work for the Army and Air Force. And then now I've worked to another think tank sim- very similar to RAN SENA, where I do very similar work. So one one thing that I've been fortunate enough in my you know, I'm just a hobby gamer. I have no professional interest in this, but I've been fortunate enough to talk to um, Mitchell Land, who's who's worked with you know Dr. Lacey or the guys up at Fort Leavenworth and the guys up at Fort Leavenworth and a couple guys up in New Jersey. And it's interesting to hear how different professional war gamers what they're trying to analyze through war games or what lens they're looking at war games with. And so, like you have in my eyes, this unique perspective of 
you're looking at it in four different perspectives. And so can, can you touch on that? Do they differ between what you're doing um, as a research analyst versus what you're trying to get your students to see versus, you know, what you're trying to get the students at the um, Naval Academy to see? Yeah, so absolutely. So I always tell people that analytical wargaming pays the bills and educational wargaming gets me up in the morning. Uh, and that's just my personal perspective because majority of the work I do at CNA and uh, previously at Rand World is analytical wargaming. We do some educational wargaming, but predominantly because of the way funding works and what the interests are and how gaming sits within the larger cycle of research within the DoD, it's largely and predominantly analytical wargaming, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but uh, is about you know, assessing data and producing insights and so forth. And for me personally, as a designer, I love producing a game that engages their players to learn something new, explore new ideas. And some of that you can get in analytical gaming, but predominantly a lot of that sits on the educational side of the spectrum of gaming, which is where I find a lot of my own personal joy as a designer and as an analyst. So I really love my work with Georgetown, with Goose, and with the Naval Academy. And each of those institutions are different in the type of students and the demographics they produce and what kind of games we look at. Um, and also the type of things I can do with them because of, you know, I mean, a graduate student at Georgetown has a different schedule than, let's say, a U.S. Naval Academy midshipman who's preparing for life as a, a naval officer, right? Their lives are much more regimented. They have different experiences. They're usually like, you know, anywhere from 18 to 21, while grad students, I have a mix. I have active duty majors in the army at the Pentagon. Um, I have people who were journalists, people who are straight from undergrad, people who have spent 10, 15 years in our DOD or national security realm. So it's, it's a, a different mix. But every time, regardless of the demographic, if you put a game that engages their intellectual interests, you'll get buy-in and they'll shockingly surprise you of how insightful and engaged they will be with each other with the topic and how it can be a powerful you know I mean, learning tool so and i don't mean to put you on the spot here but do you recall any specific instance of like some takeaway or some model in a war game that that really surprised you um just as an example i know there was a game designed in the fort leavenworth curriculum that instead of being a typical war game was, I believe it was like FEMA emergency response. And I just found that was really interesting that a student took the initiative and like, you know, shifted over, you know, three steps left and went in a direction I wouldn't expect. Have you been surprised like that in the past? And can you think of an instance? So I can think of a couple of times I was surprised, but I get, you know, I mean, every semester when I teach my war game design course, either at Georgetown or Naval Academy, I always learn something from my students, and which sounds you know, surprising, right? Uh, because often these students are first-time designers, but they also have these new perspective on game design. They're, not, uh, they're often unfeathered by norms and expectations, right? Because yeah. you, know, you and I, who've played lots of games, we have certain forms that we have learned and have expected in games, right? But because they don't, they have this, like the, the canvas is blank and they'll think of super clever things, right? Uh, for instance, this past fall, uh, a group uh, that designed a Splendid Failure, which is an um, original educational game on um, post-Civil War reconstruction. And it's a political game. It's a Paul Mill game, right? There's an element of insurgency to it, but 
I've really enjoyed how they adapted a CRT, like a combat result table, to be more of a demo, uh, a political CRT, right? So instead of like forces on forces, they looked at like, hey, is this state government bureaucratically leaning Democrat or Republican, right? And how many votes and influences must you do to shift columns and get the result that you want, right, to win the election, right? Which is a, such a fascinating way to look at CRTs, uh, which is not your typical way, right? But I found that super clever. And I was like, wow, like I learned something. Yeah, that sounds great. So that leads into what, I guess, what's the objective of Fleet Marine Force then? Oh, so Fleet Marine Force is a high tactical education game. When I first was designing it, I conceived it as I wanted a game that both enlisted sergeants and corporals, right? The ranks that I was in when I was in the Marine Corps, all the way up to majors and lieutenant colonels could play and really treat it as an intellectual sandbox. Uh, for those who are not DOD nerds, right, like myself, uh, the Marine Corps and a lot of the DOD uh, and the services specifically are going through a change of what they are imagining their roles to be in American foreign policy, right? The Marine Corps has this new concept called Force Design 2030 about how it's re-transforming itself to be a, a, a naval maritime focused force in the Pacific. And if you're super interested, you can go listen to the Commandant uh, on various podcasts and so forth. But that, and you're, a lot of these ideas are new to the Marine Corps, who has spent, you know, I mean, 20 plus years in Afghanistan and Iraq. So with Fleet Marine Force, I wanted uh, to produce a game that a lot of Marines enlisted or officers could really take to it and you know kick the tires on all these new concepts that the Marine Corps is considering. Right? Uh, should we get small boats right to do intradition operations? Right? Uh, is land-based uh, naval surface fires really something that the Marine Corps should pursue? Right? Uh, how do we do ISR and sensor to shooter chain? Um, um, against, you know, in, uh, pure adversaries, right? How do we do air defense? Some uh, area uh, in which the Marine Corps has long, you know, atrophied that capability uh, due to uh, counterinsurgency operations in Af Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, the game was really designed to allow you to kick the tires on, uh, on some new technologies, new capabilities and new concepts. And the game doesn't really tell you that this is the answer. This is how you're supposed to win the war against China or, you know, whatever. It's really about, hey, in these kind of, in like in the Straits of Malacca, right? If we're facing uh, Chinese submarines, all right, what are some different capabilities that we can use to do X, Y, Z, right? But if you're doing something, let's say gray zone and you're trying to do um, uh, maritime militia stuff or legal fishing operations, you, you may need a whole new suite of ideas and concepts and capabilities. And that's really what I built FMF to be. Uh, I tell the Marine Corps units that I give these units out to, or these games out to is, See the game and the and the rule set as the baseline, right? Mm -hmm. And and bend it, uh, make it uh, change form as you need to. Because uh, let's say 10th Marines, which is a a fires unit, right? They use like artillery and rockets, right? They will focus on a very different part of FMF's rule set than let's say Anglico, which is about I mean uh, partnerships with uh, allies and partners in the region and um and in, in, and then, you know, I mean, cyber elements of the Marine Corps or the MIG will focus on different elements, right? And that's okay, right? I want each unit to sort of make the game as your sort of your own, right? Sort of how digital games have mods, right? For like Age of Empires and so forth. And I really wanted to take that approach with a board game, right? Like it's very scenario based, uh, based. Like the game doesn't come with, um, 
a set scenario or a set uh, victory condition like you do for a lot of commercial games. It comes with a booklet that says, for this map, here, here are a bunch of different scenarios, and these are the win conditions and the order of battle for this one. And this one has a different one, and this one has a, even a, a different angle, right? Or a different map, right? So that's really how I approach FMF. And you know I mean, it's really about education and ex- uh, concept exploration down at the grassroots level. So they can go explore these different technologies or strategies and see how they play out. Yeah. So, you know I mean, the game projects out to 2030, 2040. So, and the game fundamentally has four actions you can do. Uh, you know I mean, as a commercial war game designer, you're like only four. Why? Right. But I really wanted it to be accessible, right. To mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who are not hobby gamers, right. Like you and I. So I was like, Hey, you can do four actions, which is, uh, move in combat, move and conceal, play a card, and conduct resupply. Those are essentially the four things you can do. And the card game, which is really uh, representative of the joint force, right? Everything from B2 bombers to naval mines to different types of ammunition to other units that you can attach to your, uh, your uh, pieces on the board, like combat engineers, right? Mm-hmm. Is really where the complexity happens. And you can only select a portion of that you know, of the joint force of the card deck, right? So you only have certain command points that you can choose to get cards that are priced at different rates, right? So you know, a drone is easier than a manned aircraft to get access to, right? So you have to make these trade-offs, right? Like this may be super exquisite and amazing platform, but it's really hard for me to get access to, right, as a battalion commander. So I may go for a bunch of low-end, more disposable drones, right? That's a trade-off you make. Maybe you do it, uh, maybe that trade-off is different in different scenarios, right? So that's really what we um, want the game to do uh, in terms of education at the tactical level. And, and I see here that there's there's some negative things going on, too. I, I see Chinese deepfakes, tactical cyber attacks, so that it, it appears that the game state's evolving, that and they, I assume, need to adapt and change. Is that what's going on here? So in terms of the uh, capabilities in the deck, we, we, we try to, uh, or I try to project outwards and see what the Chinese are saying they're going to do. And I give them credit for, at least to keep it unclassified, give them credit for what they're saying they're going to do, right? Uh, and I tell the units like, hey, if you have um, ideas that you want to toss into the game, like there's a, let's say you have a cool cyber widget that you want to use uh, uh, that you know about at your unit. Well, make a card, right? And make it fit yeah. into the game and see how that really works against a thinking adversary. That's really what we're about, the war game at the educational level, is how does concepts that look good mm-hmm. on paper, on PowerPoint, really test up against an adversary that thinks, right? Because one thing right. I will say is that I've run over 130 of these game sessions in the last 20 years, virtually and in person. And there's no like perfect strategy, right? One strategy that worked with another group right and you're like oh we just demolished them right but then then the adversary learns right like oh you did this right so you target our logistics so we're going to counter with this right or we're oh or in this situation you're really you outgun us so we're going to focus on cyber right and really focus on your ability to find us and to target us right so there are different ways to uh, think about a situation and that's really what we want the players to do right it's to get mental reps right uh, the way I describe it is like educational wargaming is like going to the gym for your brain. 
right? Like we do a lot of PT in the Marine Corps. We run three miles and we carry heavy things on our back and we lift weights. But how many times, how many times does a commander or even a tactical leader, like a sergeant get reps at making hard decisions at the tactical level? And that's what educational gains really provide uh, professionally in the DOD. Well, it looks great, and congratulations on your uh, what appears to be really successful COVID project. Uh, and I just got to tell you, as someone not in that sphere, let me just tell you, like as a fan of the hobby, how cool it sounds if you make that into. I don't even know if there's an interest there, but if you could game gamify that, I mean, really game it, um, where you give players the capabilities to shop for the next ten years and see what the battlefield effects are. Well, you have my pre order. Yeah, so um, I'm trying to. I'm working with uh, a publisher right now, trying to get a commercial version out there. Mainly because right now I'm making these copies on my <laughs> dining room table, and I literally have not eaten at my dining room table because it's covered in game components uh, since August. Like I said, I like eat and live at my computer desk, uh, which is probably unhealthy, guys. Don't do that. Uh, but that's the life I live right now. Um, and hopefully, uh, we can also produce a copy that is commercially available. But the idea is to get as many of these copies out into units um, mm-hmm. as possible, so they can you know, keep using it. Right? We've created a Vassal module, a tabletop simulator uh, module for it, so we do virtual sessions. But right now, those are limited to uh, military personnel, mainly because mm-hmm. of bandwidth. Right? Like I only have so much time, and sure. there's so much demand on the military side. Uh, professionally that I just can't accommodate everyone. So, right. but maybe I'll have you come just you know, for kicks and what you know what I mean, just don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so ha- has this been adopted by many units? So right now we have, was it 82 copies out to uh, various Marine Corps units and joint partners. So it's been pretty hectic since August. We've I produced about 82 copies and we sent them all out, all the way out to uh, Europe, Okinawa, Hawaii, California, North Carolina. All the major Marine Expeditionary Forces units have one, right? Um, and they go nice. all the way to different units, you know what I mean? Anglico, Combat Engineers. Uh, we actually had um, six ESB, which is the 6th uh, Engineering Support Battalion. Uh, I mentioned them because I gave them a copy. They ran it out uh, as part of their field exercises um, out in like they did, had a tent outside and a part of their training and they ran FMF as part of their uh, training cycle. But they came back to me and emailed me this long thing. They're like, Hey, they're combat engineers. Right. So they're like, Hey, they complained. They're like, why is there only one combat engineering card in this car, in this deck? And why is it only about EOD, like anti-mining stuff, right? We do more things than that. And I was like, cool, like, well, like what, right? Yep. So they gave me this shoe list. And, but the great thing is that since they played with, uh, played the game already, right? They already knew how the cards were supposed to think about and how the, the effects are, right? So they're like, hey, awesome. we can do these kind of things, like increase mobility uh, costs for hexes because we put obstacles, right? I was like, oh yeah, that's a great idea, right? Or they're like, hey, we can also repair facilities like or uh, produce more decoys for fire missions, right? And so forth. And it was great to have that feedback. And honestly, I just gen- took their ideas, made new cards and sent them in PDF and they cut them out and they added to their deck. Was, uh, that kind of relationship is what I love uh, with Fleet Marine Force because the units, oh, sounds- yeah, the units really give lots of great feedback and they make it their own. That sounds super rewarding, um, and that's just gotta that's just gotta feel good to, to get that that kind of feedback. Uh, so you mentioned that there was only one um, 
engineer card in the deck uh from like a i don't know a fan perspective i guess do you have a, f- a favorite piece of future tech in this or Ugh. or tech or card or event or or something that you geek out on so i guess the first thing that comes to mind is what we call in the game uh the c5 isr card uh, which is an acronym that you don't need to know about it essentially is <laughs> an aggregation of all the tactical networks uh that a unit will use at the tactical level like for example how do i share data right between uh rocket battalions right or batteries, right? How do I uh, pass on targeting data? Or how do I sense things, right? You think of it as your command and control network, right? And in, in the real world, in the real military, it's an aggregation of systems, right? And I can call them out like a fat, uh, a fat tids and link 16, all these things that you don't need to know about. <laughs> but different platforms have different systems that they should pass data between, right? Okay. And we're like, hey, we have this game that centers around, you know what I mean, finding targets and shooting targets, right? You, in the game, you can't shoot at targets that uh, we use Columbia blocks. So you like, you, they're standing up, you have to put them on their back, which means they've been sighted or, and you have, you have targeting data on them, right? So you, mm-hmm. you have to complete the whole chain, like find a unit, reveal the unit, and then prosecute a target uh, uh, via fires or cyber attack or whatever, right? And but we were like, well, we don't want the Marines or whoever is playing it to have negative learning, right? To only focus on that and not realize all the C2 command and control elements that you really need to worry about, like cyber jamming and all this sort of modern technology that we're reliant on, right? So we create, uh, so I created this car called, um, uh, ABMS, which is another acronym, right, <laughs> for Advanced Battle Management System. And for the Chinese, we call it Battlefield AI. But the cars are the same, right? They're exactly the same. We just call it different things. But essentially is your fires and your interception qual- uh, um, combat values can be decreased by how much you're being jammed, right? So let's say you put you successfully do you know, I mean, three cyber attacks on me. All those will put... Um, tokens on my on my abms card to degrade my ability to prosecute fires it doesn't stop me but it just makes it harder right so there's a different dimension that you have to think about and i've always seen the marines really like realize how hard it is to fight in a contested environment where someone is trying to jam you and cyber you and throw missiles at you right we've been sort of like spoiled by having dominance in many domains right that we didn't have to worry about all those things right but in fmf it really makes you think about all these multiple vectors that you have to worry about and you take risks somewhere because you can never have everything you want in 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 the toolbox right and that's something we we, uh, we we sort of drive home when we're facilitating these games is like the card deck is like the joint force. All the cool widgets from B2 bombers and submarines are in there, right? But you as the player, as a battalion commander, or as a regimental commander or a company commander, depending on what scale we're playing at, you only get a tiny slice of that, right? Because the war effort is large, right? Uh, so it forces hard trade-offs, right? Like, what am I really need to have, right? And maybe you took risk in cyber so you can do naval mining, but that may have drawbacks, right? And what if the other team does a cyber attack offensive on you and you're just ill-prepared, right? What are you going to do, right? So it's all about different di- uh, dimensions of the threat and having them be adaptable. That's awesome. I mean, again, this is currently targeted for a completely different audience than me, but (laughs) I've always been a proponent that tough decisions is what 
largely drives what makes my favorite game. So forcing players into making those decisions, making those sacrifices. I mean, that, that sounds like a winner. So, so it's awesome, man. So one thing you mentioned is about, yes, it is targeted at Marines uh, and it uses the language and sort of um, the processes in which Marines are understanding their daily lives on their staff at commands. But at the same time, as a game, if I put in your, we'll have you play a game, uh, I promise, in the future. And you'll recognize mechanics that you, uh, from other games, right? Um, where you, it's a, a car-driven engine, right? Where you pick cards in the beginning, there's uh, there's no randomness in that element, right? Mm. It's a collaborative team-based game, right? So there's a, a bit of cooperation between, let's say, you and I on the team together being the Marine Corps force, right? Uh, but there's also tension sometimes because, you know what I mean, I can be like, hey, like I need you to provide me air cover, right? Because I've, I'm out of schlicks, right? But then you're like, hey, if I do that for you, that means I'm revealed and I don't want to be revealed, right? So they can be tensions as well, right? Um there are uh, many of the Columbia block combat mechanics. It's really a bucket of dice sort of mechanic where you have your ammo and you throw out dice. And after you expend dice, that's pretty much what you've done and you need to resupply, right? So there are many game mechanics that you'll recognize. Oh, that's my dog, right? That you'll recognize uh, as a gamer, as a hobby gamer, because I also pull from my own experience, which is hobby gaming and professional game design. Well, I think that, and that's maybe a little bit of a nice segue into uh what you're doing at uh the naval academy and at georgetown i think there's this i heard a comment recently from jeff engelstein about like this era of board game design we've entered where it's it's less about the newest thing these days and more taking concrete um well-established mechanics and doing something new with them or improving upon them and so i assume and I'm cheating a little bit here because I listened to your great interview with Liz, Liz Davidson from last year. A lot of your students at Georgetown are probably taking sound mechanics and implementing those into their game designs, I'm assuming. So, yeah. So my students are in an unenviable position, I guess, depending on what your perspective on late nights are. <laughs> um, because you know, think about it, like some of these guys have uh, and gals have not designed a game ever. And some, most of them, large, vast majority of them are not hobby gamers. So sure. they're learning how to be war gamers, how to design games and how to do professional gaming at the same time as the researching, designing, <laughs> developing and playtesting a game of their own in 16 weeks and doing, doing all the readings. Right. So, and coming to lectures. Right. So do you recommend that? Is that, like, <laughs> is that, is that how I should go about designing the game? <laughs> um, so one thing I will say is, my students in their 16 weeks, it is a hard class. I warn them every time. Like in the first class, I'm like, this will be one of the hardest classes you'll ever take in your career, right? If you're not in for that, quit now. Like <laughs> just quit now because before your group is committed to you, right? Because everyone will have to pull weight, right? It is a whole team effort. Otherwise, you will fail, right? Like if you succeed, you'll do great things, right? But it's a marathon run, right? I've, I remember being a student where I would cram for exams and write a paper last minute. You cannot do that with a game design. It's just <laughs> impossible, right? Sure. It is a marathon run that you have to constantly sprint, right? So it's a marathon you're sprinting in, right? And the course is sort of like in the woods, right? So it's not easy. But at the same time, one thing I found is that 
the condensed timeline, the deadlines, the pressure really produces lots of creativity and also like forces you, forces you to produce, right? There's no, mm-hmm. it's like sink or swim, right? And a lot of these A-type retrievers that are in my class, they do not like to fail. So they work very hard uh, at you know, succeeding. So like, I'm sure you had a, a game or two ideas that you wanted to design or had noodled around with, right? But they sort of fall to the wayside. I have those. I have a whole book of game design uh, concepts and ideas that I've never gone to, right? Um, but you know, having to be on this timeline and having other people depend on you has really forced that sort of timeline to accelerate and really meet those deadlines. So, you know, I mean, in some ways it's good, right? It's like a sort of design retreat, right? Where you, you sure. have to produce and there's no leaving until you do. Right, right. Yeah. Or you're going to fail. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm someone who thrives in with structure and, uh, uh, I will briefly plug in it's a long way out a, a very small RPG I'm working on. Um, and it's like, because I, it's not my job and it's not my primary hobby focus. It's like, it just gets, it gets put on the back burner. So I totally get it because I thrive in that environment. If I have deadlines, it's much better all around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm like that myself. And like the pandemic was really, you know, for all you know, the terribleness associated with the pandemic, you know, as a designer, it really forced me to sit down and be like, I'm going to design this game, right? This is what I'm going to do. And I devoted weekends to it. And like, I would sit there and design FMF for like a whole day and play test it by myself. And I mean, look up articles and research and do research, but you really, you know, yeah, I also need structure and sometimes it has to be self-imposed, but you know what I mean? It's more rigid and less self-imposing um, or flexible if you can just move it yourself right so if someone is like you have to do it by end of february right that's that's when it has to be done um i mean you're more compelled to so if you want matt i can provide you those your deadlines and be like (laughs) matt you know i mean we're gonna shut down and i'm gonna fine you a thousand dollars for every day you're late i'm okay with that right and we can we can play with that number that we're talking about Yeah, I'm sure my wife will be thrilled about that. <laughs> as long as you meet the deadline, it'll be fine, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. My job and daughter, yeah. Um, so is there any... So I have I have several more questions for you, but I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to run this too long. Is there... And so before we move into those, is there anything else you want to stump for or, or just talk about in, in terms of what you do and how you war game? Yeah, so... Sure what I do, I love what I do, right? Uh, I love being part of the CNA gaming team and is uh, a special, uh, special place in, in the defense department. Um, and I highly encourage people to explore uh, the uh, war gaming community in the DOD. If you're interested, come to Georgetown's um, webinar series. We have a YouTube channel, uh, just Google um to Georgetown University Wargaming Society. And you can hear about other people who do similar things that I do, like for the Air Force at LeMay or at the Air Force Academy, which has its own Wargaming Center, or for the Navy War College, who has a fantastically deep history in Wargaming going all the way before World War II, right? Uh, hmm. uh, with names like Spruance and uh, Nimitz, right? Uh, and they have a whole, you know what I mean, deep history about it, which is amazing, right? So there are a lot of great people who do wargaming in the DoD beyond myself, like Yuna Wong at Ida, um, Nina Collars at um, the Naval War College, along with Pete Pellegrino, who's also there. And, like, and of course, you know what I mean? Ken, uh, you know what I mean? 
Kansas City sort of natives at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, mm-hmm. James Starrett, Mike Dunn, who are fantastic mm-hmm. and did do amazing work at the Command General Staff College for the U.S. Army. So there's lots of different dimensions and angles in which you can do wargaming, educational, analytical, somewhere in between, like myself. Um, and if you're interested, you know what I mean, let me know and I'll try uh, find me on Twitter and you know I'll help you as much as I can. Awesome. And then just I and I've asked you before, I know the the answer, but is Goose open to the public when uh, things pick back up like in-person gaming sessions? Yes, absolutely. So um, right now, in-person gaming sessions are actually on hold even for the students because we are virtual in the first spring semester um, okay. or the first month of the semester. But all of our events online and in-person normally are open to the public, right? So you can come to our webinars, you can watch our YouTube channel, uh, you can join our Discord. You do not have to be a student. We have a wide range of members all the way from, you know, I mean, hobby gamers who've been hobby gaming for 40 plus years, right? Which are, who are great and run games for us to people who are new to the uh, field who are just like freshmen in college, not even at our school, right? Um, or to active duty army officers on and, and naval officers or sailors enlisted and so forth. So we, we have a big umbrella approach at Goose, and that's how I really want to do it. Um, because I think every type of gamer, new and old, have something interesting to say and add to the community. And we just you know, say, hey, be respectful, be, uh, be kind to one another, and enjoy games, right? And whatever game that may be. That's awesome. 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 All right. So we have a little segment um, and a shout out to someone on Reddit said that we should use hot um, in our. So it used to be called lightning round, but now it's the hot seat. H-O-T-T seat. Uh, Are you ready? Um, So don't think on it too much. Just go through your first instinct and you can Mm -hmm. pass if you want, but uh, we'll just blow through these. Okay. You ready? Yep. All right. Uh, Favorite topic to play a war game on. Hmm. Recently, it's been like amphibious and naval wargaming. Um, that's mainly because of where I work, but it's just something I love as a marine and so forth. It's it, both historical, like submarines, you know, ship on ship combat. I love that stuff. It just I can't stay away. Have you played the Fleet series? I have and haven't played in a while, in a few years, and I've been trying to explore different things. Like one of the new games I want to really dig into is Atlantic Chase, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so you know. I mean, th- I just finished like Tarawa 1943, which is a great uh, game by Warrington. So I'm working through, I'm trying to work through my, my shelf of shame, honestly. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's just a never ending task. I get it. I <laughs> yeah. get it. Um, okay. Favorite topic to read about. Ooh. So my reading wise, because I do a lot of re- reading as an analyst, which is some, sometimes really boring and long doctrinal pubs, uh, the DOD produces. If you have never read, read one, I do not recommend it. <laughs> right. Uh, is not a page turner. Like, you know, you don't like JP five Oh, like operations, like that's exactly a hit. It's a slapper, right. Uh, is not, um, <laughs> Unless you're a super nerd, right? Uh, so I often switch between like things about wargaming uh, and also non uh, like fiction and like nonfiction that is not in my field. So I usually cycle between something that's related to my field, uh, a fiction book of any kind, and then a nonfiction book that is totally unrelated to my uh, my career. So which helps me stay, you know, me uh, broad minded as a designer. For sure. Uh, what was the first war game you remember playing? Oh, first war game I remember playing is probably Risk, right? As a kid, I remember playing Risk uh, with my cousins. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, this game could be better. 
right? Like I really enjoyed it even as a kid, right? But I'm like, I have some ideas. I have some, I have some designer notes, right? And I guess, you know, if I knew that you could be a war game designer, that I would pursue it more like adamantly, but did not. So, um, you know what I mean? I ended up here eventually. That's awesome. Uh, first board game you remember playing? Ah, first board game. It's probably either chess or go. Uh, in Korean, we call it paduk. Uh, but those are probably the first board games I ever actually played. As um, my grandfather was big on go and paduk, um, so we played that as a kid. And I remember playing chess in Bryant Park in New York City and getting whooped. Wow! Right by all these old people. Right, yeah. um, <laughs> I got pretty good, uh, and then I fell out. On, you know, what I mean. I didn't play as much chess uh, in high school because I've discovered girls. Uh, sure. But, you know yeah. I, mean? <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed uh, chess and, and and go as a kid. Yeah, you know the YouTube algorithm or the Facebook algorithm will sometimes like hit me with a random uh, Magnus Carlson chess video. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be like, hey, this is fascinating. Let me go play around at chess on like Lichess or something like that, and then I just get stomped. And it's like, mm, yeah, I remember why I don't do this. Yeah, and you know, I mean the the even the computer AI ones on your computer these days they're so good. Yeah, they've gotten so yeah. much better. And I was like, damn, I'm being crushed by this thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it also feels good because you're like, ah, oh, one more time, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I got beat so quickly. Yeah, I just <laughs> learned what castling was like a year and a half ago. No exaggeration. Man, you need to come down to Bryant Park in New York City, and you, you'll learn real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, Army or Navy? Obviously Navy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Come on. Best gaming experience? Ooh, best gaming experience. That's hard. Um, I guess most recently, I would say um, my team at CNA, we went to PAX Unplugged uh, as like a professional development thing. And it was the first time in a long time that you know what I mean? we've gone to a gaming convention due to the pandemic. But it was great to go with my coworkers who... Uh, work on DoD topics, but also are game designers and are super nerdy, right? Which are great. I love my teammates. Uh, and we got to talk about games, talk about uh, game designs, and really go look at games at PAX that like uh, that are usually not what you consider like war games, right? Like the Fleet series or MMP, right? But look at their games and be like, you know what? We can take that mechanic and apply it to this. Or, hey, oh, we can take this resource engine and apply it to Navy personnel uh, challenges, right? And it was really cool to have that kind of intellectual gaming experience, which I loved, right? Yeah. Hey, if your team wants to work out a deal to expense uh, Historic Fest, there's <laughs> there's two individuals that would be worth your time there. One, Mike Dunn, and if James Sarek comes, both of them. But have you ever touched base with Mike Denson Mike of Denson? Last Hundred Yards? Uh, no. Last 100 Yards is a game that we're trying to get started at Goose. Uh, one of our uh, our vice president, Ed Campbell, who's also a major in the Army. I think he's a major. Um, he is really obsessed with it right now, trying to do it as part of a fight, uh, um, Friday uh, Friday night fight clubs that we're trying to do. That's a new initiative we're doing for the spring, but that the last 100 Yards is a game that he wants to choose for that series. Um, we, we haven't started yet, but that's something we want to do uh, in the coming future. So, so happy to connect. I love Mike Dunn and James there. They have done a couple events with us. And uh, you know, I, mean, I abuse their generosity with their time, honestly, a lot. <laughs> Mike, Mike Dinson is uh, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And he will talk last hundred yards, design concepts, and 
just what he's trying to illustrate because he's he's created this tactical system that's so different than any other tactical system and he has reasons behind that that just make sense and he will talk your ear off in the best way and um a gentleman was in town at fort leavenworth we'll get back to your question real quick don't worry um and he was there with mike dunn and he was just trying to, I guess, gather, you know, this is what Mike Dunn does up at the fort, all this stuff. And I said, you've got to t- talk to Mike Denson because this guy will travel across the country just to demo his game. And I think he's just a great teacher. And I think he's also just like a great tool to um, when you're trying to gain something more from the war game. You're not just playing it like I play it, if that makes sense. No, I totally get it. Um, so one thing I will say is, just because you're a great designer does not make you a great war gamer. Just because you're yeah. a great war gamer does not make you a great teacher of war games, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't consider myself great in any of those categories, right? Uh, I tried to be better every time, and there's you know for teaching has has been a a steep learning curve for myself uh, as I tried to teach because like there are certain things that are intuitive to you as a designer that you have sort of just learned in your bones uh, through gaming a lot, right? And it's hard to convey that in a lecture or just be like, oh, why don't you know this intuitively, right? So right, a, lot, right. a lot of it, that has been sort of my struggle as, a, as an educator of like, how do I break this down Barney style, right? To someone who's totally new to the topic right? and new to the idea of game design, right? Because like, you and I are, you know, uh, Mike Denson, when we sit down to a game, we break it down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, into pieces and we add, and we think about, oh, like we we pull our Rolodex, right? Of game design mechanics and game experiences and how we can mission match these things, right? Um, you know, game designers in many regards are like jazz, jazz musicians, right? We know the fundamentals of music theory and notes and, and how to play instruments. But a lot of it's also rifting off of each other, uh, being being yeah. able to improvise and splice things and just you know, I mean, change it up, right? Uh, move into different keys and, su- and such. Um, and I think that, that skill is very hard, right? It's only really done by practicing that skill over and over again. Um, and I love talking to designers for that reason, like, of any kind, because I feel like you don't have to be a war game designer. You can be any kind of game designer and you always have interesting perspectives like uh, to impart in terms of why you thought this thing or what kind of mechanics yes. you represented to do things. And I think that's always really fascinating. Yeah, it, it is. It's interesting to learn why, what drove, you know, the inclusion of a D10 and is it just mathematical or is there an actual reason why you're using D10 base or something like that? And sometimes oh, yeah. there's a reason, sometimes there's not. Like in FMF, we use a D16. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's super odd. Um, so originally we had a, uh, just a slight aside, originally we had a D10 um, and uh, the infantry guys that we were playtesting with, our, our Marine Corps officers uh, who are infantry based, uh, they were complaining that a lot of ground combat was only like 20%, right? You had to hit a two or below. And they, they, they honestly just you know complained about it. And we we're like, uh, right. So we went up to a D20 and we adjusted some of the numbers, right? Um, but then it became uh, some of the other, like the combat worked a little bit better, or like close combat, but the fires became way too effective, right? And um, we're like, uh, okay. So, and then we're doing a play test and we're like, okay, let's try a D16, right? Like, let's try to, like, we, we tweaked with the numbers a little bit and we went down to a D16, right? Because the D12 didn't didn't produce enough, you know, I mean, space, 
uh, D20 produced too much of like a curve uh, that we wanted. So we settled on a D16. And one of the weird benefits that uh, we we got out of it is that D16s make the math hard, right? Uh, and it's not super intuitive, right? And people just stopped fighting us on the numbers, right? Because when it was a D10 and D20, right? They would be like, why is this 40%? Or why is this like whatever, right? <laughs> on a D16, I'm like, it's a six out of a D16. And they're like, okay, cool. I'm out. All right, they're like, they just accepted it, right? And some of our like mathematically inclined Marines were like, they was they will mention something, right? But um, it was it was just easier for them to accept for some weird reason. Um, I've never had anyone else like complain about it, right? Until That's awesome. they, I mean, until they like really crunched the numbers. But in the moment, they just accept it. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, it's a weird dice. It's a weird dice. <laughs> it is. It is. And right, I have uh, bought I have bought every D sixteen on Amazon, like. In the yeah, last, it's not like, one you. Uh, <laughs> you don't get those in packs usually, do you? Uh, well, you know, I, mean, I found one place that does it, and I've bought all that, like essentially their inventory. Um, so <laughs> I will hold back. I'm literally staring at it right now. <laughs> all right. Um, let's see. I got to find my spot here. Okay. Uh, oh, well, we already answered this one, but we'll we'll go to it. Brady or Mahomes? Obviously, the goat. Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. All right. yeah, Mahomes yeah. is great. I will I will admit that Mahomes is a great quarterback. Kansas City has a, a great future ahead of it. Uh and you're in it you're, it is in the envious position, right? Uh but hey, like you know, can be Tom Brady. Like uh, when Mahomes gets like four uh Super Bowls, we'll start talking, right? And we'll, uh, about who's the goat, but like come on. Like Tom Brady has won Super Bowls with two different teams. Like how are you going to and you know what I mean, the most Super Bowls of any quarterback, right? Like and he's still playing. He's like an android, man. Like he's a android built to uh, torture the rest of the rest of the NFL, honestly. And I've realized how much it sucked for everyone else as a Patriots fan, um, because now I'm like, oh, I'm on the other side of the Tom Brady equation, right? This does not feel great. <laughs> right. So I'm like, oh, I empathize why people hated us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't feel good for uh, for several several years. Yeah. <laughs> So I just, this is really concerning. I'm going to proceed forward and assume everything is okay, but I only see audio waves coming from you. Wouldn't that be a disaster? <laughs> um, I see no. your waves as well. Oh, you see my waves? Like it's, yeah. it's, it looks okay. Good. Okay. Uh, maybe that's just what it looks like. I just had a minor, minor heart attack. Um, but the important stuff's there. I can always put my questions in. Yeah. Uh, well, Let's keep it going. Uh, best city to get barbecue in? Ooh, oh, that's hard. Um, I guess I could say like something super controversial. Um, but the last great barbecue I remember was in Raleigh uh, when I was visiting okay. a friend, and it, he took me to. I don't even remember the place. It was like this little shack, <laughs> and I loved it. It was great. It was delicious, and he had to like roll me home because I ate so much. Yeah, um, Raleigh does have a pretty good barbecue. The correct answer was Kansas City. Um, the reason so on, I, brought- I you know, I've never had barbecue in Kansas City, so I've driven past it uh, on a cross country road trip where I was bouldering and rock climbing and stuff. Um, but I ne- I didn't stay there long enough to get barbecue. So maybe next time I come visit Fort Leavenworth, I will get some barbecue in Kansas City. You better. 
there was the only reason I bring it up is a few months ago there was some like here's the top ten barbecue cities in the U.S. and like Virginia Beach made it or something. Oh, and I was okay. Just like, I'm even out. even I'm, I'm like I don't know. That's highly <laughs> that's highly sus uh, on on many levels. Um, and maybe there's one great place, but I wouldn't say it's like the best look. Like it yeah. wouldn't come to my mind. Um, and I know there's a huge like uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Missouri, and all this in Georgia like. Uh, rivalry about what is supposed to go on a barbecue, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. what kind of sauce and stuff. But you know, I mean, being a New York City kid, like I don't know any of that. I'm just like, cool. It's all tastes delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Smoking yeah. meat. It's all good. Yeah, I'm uh, just like it sounds good. <laughs> Gettysburg or Bulge? Ooh. So I will have to blame my one of my former colleagues, John Gentile at Rand, who is. Um, a big civil war buff and military historian and former army colonel, but he loved Gettysburg and I, the civil war uh, in general didn't really intrigue me as a, as a historian, as a, as an analyst or as a war gamer. I don't like, I barely play civil war games, but having worked with John for several years at RAN, he loves the civil war in terms of, uh, the military campaign, the strategic consequences, and he is a deep historian, super knowledgeable. And we designed a, a Gettysburg game uh, at RAN for the Army as an educational tool that we played at Gettysburg, right? Wow. Um, outside uh, with a bunch of Army officers and um, uh, other analysts. So it's been, so that makes me think of Gettysburg. So yes, I'll say Gettysburg. Nice. Uh, Navy or Marines? Marines, always. I mean, Marines are at the top of the hierarchy, man. It's like Marines, Navy, and everyone else. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, favorite restaurant in the D.C. area? Ooh, that is so hard. Um, I've also half forgotten what it means to eat out uh, <laughs> in the last couple of years. Um, there's a, a little hole in the wall, which I love, a taco place called uh, Tacos and Tortas out in uh, Columbia Pike. Uh, near the Pentagon, which is a fantastic taco place. Uh, absolutely amazing food. Um, so that's the one that comes to mind. There's um, oh shoot, there's a place in Navy Yard, which I'm totally blanking on. Um, but it has, I think, um, Peruvian food. Oh, no, nice. That's not right. Uh, but something like that. And it's just a great uh, morning breakfast place. Uh, oh, La Formosa, right? Uh, it's Puerto Rican, not a Peruvian, um, and it is absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend. Nice. Uh, who wins the AFC this year? Ooh, so there's an emotional answer and there's like an analytical answer. So emotionally, I will say the Patriots because that's what my deep hope is. Uh, sure. Because, but I also know that's probably not true, <laughs> right? So as like if you're if I was a betting man, I had to like bet my you know what I mean my rent money. Um, I think if Hunter Henry is back at full health, I say the Titans, um, right? Uh, mainly because of Hunter Henry, I think is one of the best running backs in the league. He's very physical. He'll be fresh after he's back to normal, right? Your um, Patriots, your Patriots pride is bleeding through. Yeah. Der- Derrick uh, Henry, Derrick Henry. <laughs> or yeah. Uh, not Hunter Henry. Yes. Derrick Henry. Right. Sorry. Um, but uh, I think the Chiefs will make it very close, right? I think it'll be the Chiefs and the Titans in the AFC matchup, like analytically, right? Um, and really will turn down to which 
which version of Patrick Mahomes you'll get uh, in that game. Will you get the first early half or the second later yeah. half, Patrick uh, Patrick Mahomes? And you know, I mean, I I think he's great, right? Absolutely amazing. But you know, everyone goes through slumps, and you know, I mean, this I mean, this year has been difficult for all the various teams fighting COVID and all the new protocols and such. So I think it's really about what team will be healthy, and I think mm-hmm. if, uh, I think the run game is really underestimated in. Um, the playoffs and right, who's going to stop um, Derrick Henry? I don't know. Right. It's not going to be me. I, I'm definitely not volunteering to uh, to jump into the A gap to stop that guy. Nope. Right? Nope. So, nope. Hard pass. <laughs> nice. So Titans is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't hold it against you. Uh, do you listen? Do you listen to podcasts? Oh yeah, I listen to. Uh, so I'm a big multitasker. So like whenever I'm making FMF sets or doing, uh, doing chores, uh, um, I'm always trying to do some kind of podcast, audio book. Like right now I'm listening to uh, Tin Can Titans, which is about um, Dest- yeah. uh, Destroyer Squadron in War II, which is in the Pacific, which is absolutely amazing. They have interviews with... Um, uh, people who are who served on the ships, uh, and it follows sort of the arc of the Pacific, which is very interesting, um, because mostly you think of like um, destroy uh, of like carriers and not destroyers in the war. So it follows uh, Des um, Destroyer Squadron Twenty One or Desron Twenty One um, from its early days at a Guadalcanal all the way to like Tokyo Bay and the surrender. Um, so it's you know, a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. I'm about halfway through it. Um, so. And then I listen to like you know, your podcast, Beyond Solitaire, uh, Lundology is a great one. Um, you know, I listen to some nerdy ones about the defense field, like War on the Rocks has a great podcast yeah. and so forth. So yeah, I'm a big podcast person. Yeah, I was going to ask your your favorite um, non-gaming uh, podcast. So is it War on the Rocks? That's a good one. Oh yeah, the War on the Rocks ones is fantastic. Yeah. Um, what, what are some other great ones? Gosh. There's Real so quick, many. they had they had one on um, Mogadishu that mm-hmm. was just like that's I think it was War on the Rocks, and that's like what turned them turned them on to me. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is a fantastic listen. Yeah. So I also, as a Navy Marine Corps guy, I really love uh, Simsec, the Center for Maritime uh, Security's podcast uh, called Sea Control. Um, and they do fantastic stuff like on submarine, they have like former submariner, uh, captains on there. They'll talk about UUVs and maritime mines. I'll talk about China, uh, illegal fishing and all this really cool dimensions of naval, uh, security. I think is fantastic. Um, and it's also run by, uh, colleagues of mine that I know, uh, commander Jerry Samuelson and, um, um, Major, uh, Lieutenant, I think it's a Lieutenant Colonel now, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Friedrichs, um, who's a Marine. So there are, mm, what are other little ones that, that I'm trying to think about? But you know, I mean, there are a lot of great podcasts. I think it's one of those great things about um, this new era is like there's so much information about various topics that you can learn about. Um, you know, what I mean, from TED Talks to stuff you should know. You know, I mean, there's so much. I mean, um, information out there. And honestly, I wish I had more time in the day to listen to them all. Yeah, I wish I could. I do them commuting and like stuff around the house, but like yeah. I can't work and do them. I yeah, made a note I when you said <laughs> when you said commandant on podcasts. I like wrote that down because like I that's like if you said that fifteen years ago, people would be like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Yeah. Um the the podcast I was referencing was the Spear, and that was the uh, the Battle Mangadishu. That's another uh, good one. 
but I also have War on the Rocks in my hopper. Um, okay, uh, a little bit books, sci-fi or fantasy? Ooh, um, depends, honestly. Um, so I love, um, right now, so it depends on the genre too. Uh, so uh, I'm a, you know I mean, uh, Korean American kid who grew up on Japanese animation. So in Japanese anime, I love fantasy stuff. Um, okay. In books, I love sort of fantasy and sci-fi, depending on like you know I mean my mood. Like I say, fantasy recently because I read uh, the Poppy War, uh, which is a series of books uh, by R.F. Kuang, um, which is sort of a, a fantasy world where there's like magic, but also it takes a perspective. You know I mean, it's really based on sort of like Chinese history about like colonialization, but also like the civil war. Um, and there are parallels to like the communist movement of the rise of your know, populist uh, um, communism in China in the book, but it's not in place in China, but it has very interesting themes about it, which I found really fascinating. It blends history and fantasy, which I really enjoy. I love those kind of books. Nice. Uh, fiction or nonfiction? I love nonfiction. Uh, I say this because I love learning, right? Sure. So I love like uh, books that teach me something, right? About a topic that I don't know about normally, right? Whether that's, you know what I mean? Uh, submarine operations during the Cold War to like um, uh, Quest Loves, like uh, Quest for Creativity, which is a recent uh, nonfiction book that I read, which is interesting because it's totally unrelated to my field and yet sort of related in terms of game designs like creativity, right? Um, so, which all very interesting stuff. So I love to learn. So I, I say nonfiction. Nice. What, what book's next to your bed right now? Oh, what's next to my bed right now? Um, it is, oh, I have a copy of Tin Can Titans. And then what is this? Oh, uh, it is playing at war, um, which is about the interwar period at the, the Naval War College right before World War II. Nice. Um, where do you read? Like if you're going to do a book or an e-reader or whatever. Uh, so if I'm reading most times, either it's on my couch or in my bed. Um, um, and usually I try to read at parks right now, but you know, it's a bit colder here now in DC. So it's hard to do that. I like to read outside if preferably um, because you know what I mean, uh, working for the Navy and Marine Corps, I don't get to see lots of sunlight, uh, <laughs> right. And, uh, and work in like, uh, classified spaces with like, you know, pulled down windows and such. So, you know, sunlight is a premium in my opinion. Fair, fair. Uh, last great book you read. Oh, last great book I probably read is probably the Poppy War series. I, I read, I read those books, uh, colleague, um, I read it, I think all three books in like a week and a half. I just like devour them. I was like, oh, I remember these are when amazing. You, yeah. When you tweeted about those, I marked those as uh, to read. I yeah, need, uh, absolutely. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm a big fan and I'm on a whole like Asian American writer like shtick right now. Um, another great book I would recommend is um, Between the World and Me by Talos in the Coats. Uh, it is a fantastic book. It is really short and small, but um, he used to write for the Atlantic on social issues, mainly about racism in America. And um, he writes it from his perspective as a way to about talking to his son. And he grew up here in the D.C. area in New York City. He went to Howard University in D.C. And he really approaches about uh, 
very sensitive topics in a very poetic and insightful way of like, why are, why are there certain obstacles, right? In certain ways. And how, why do we see certain issues the, the way we do? And he's, he writes it from a perspective of being a father about being a, a adult in America, being an African-American in America. And, you know, I mean, honestly, if I could write like him, I would quit my job. Right. Honestly, it would, <laughs> but it is incredibly insightful. I think it is approachable uh, for anyone who's uh, interested about you know, these issues in America. Absolutely. Uh, Mark does to read. Um, do you reread books? Yes, I do. Uh, part of, and part of it's like for work, a part of it's just because, you know I mean, it's always, it's like, uh, going back to a, a good board game, right? Um, really great books will always, uh, give you, you'll, you'll glean something new every time you go to it, like a great series, whether that's on Netflix or a great book mm-hmm. on your shelf or a great board game, right? That like, there are certain board games I love to play regardless of how many times I played it. Right. Sure. Like, like Frederick, uh, by, uh, Histo games. Like I love mm-hmm. that game. I can play that game until my eyes bleed out. Right. Um, it's just one of those games I can always go back to. Nice. What are you playing next? Uh, playing next. Mm, so there are a couple games, uh, I have on my table. Uh, one is the three years war. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Oak and Iron recently uh, yeah. ever since um, I, I discovered the game at um, Historicon, uh, so which was uh, which was a great experience. So that's uh, those are the two games on my table. I just finished Tarawa, uh, and I convinced two of my coworkers to borrow my copies and, and get to learn how to play those. Um, so there are a couple other games I want to play. Right now, last night I actually played with a colleague uh, down at the University of, uh, of Miami. Uh, we play Triumph Tragedy by GMT, so I like to play yeah. a bunch of different games. So usually I have like five games um, going at any given time. So nice, 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 nice. Uh, tiki bar or nightclub? Oh, definitely a tiki bar because I wear a lot of Hawaiian shirts, so I feel like um, I would fit in. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, a work colleague of mine today actually in a meeting is like, Hey, like your zoom photo is like you in a suit, Sebastian. Like I didn't recognize you because like in the <laughs> office, like I'm in jeans and a Hawaiian shirt. So like, if you think about like working for the Navy or Marine Corps and you're like, Oh, you're in stuffy uh, suits all the time. That is not always the case. Right. <laughs> I work at a think tank and we wear jeans and Hawaiian shirts, or at least I do. Right. Awesome. <laughs> and they haven't fired me yet. So <laughs> awesome. Who wins the Super Bowl this year? Oh, who wins the Super Bowl? Uh, again, I will give a both an emotional answer and uh-huh. I think uh, a most analytical answer. I think uh, emotionally, I will love Tom Brady to win another one with the Bucks. Oh. Um, <laughs> just because you know, what I mean, the goat's gonna be goat, right? Like you know, what I mean, like how awesome would that be in terms of NFL history, right? Just like this guy, like forty four, wins another Super Bowl with another team back to back. That'd be crazy, crazy pants, right? Uh, and then Mahomes could just retire and just be like, I, you know, right? everyone gives up, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I think, you know, I think it'd be Aaron Rodgers' year this year. Um, uh. I really do, um, and I think it's. You know, because I don't, I don't see anyone in the NFC really taking them out. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if it comes down to the Chiefs or the Titans versus uh, Aaron Rodgers, you know, what I mean, it's going to be a great game. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what about you? You never told me. Oh, it's it's Chiefs. I mean, analytically, <laughs> like the defense has shown that they can rise to the challenge, like against um, really bad teams. 
Yeah, but you also like <laughs> uh, Chargers, the Steelers, who like yeah they're bad and Ben Ben Roethlisberger's okay, old. And- but, okay, Ben is a great Hall of Famer esque quarterback, right? But like this year, come on, like he's like in the thirties. Sure. <laughs> sure. Right, like, and also you're uh, like, for example, like last week we uh, the Patriots beat up on the Jaguars, right? Well, yeah, right, but it's the Jaguars, right? <laughs> like, come on no. now, okay, Got fifty uh, on them. We have the Packers of seven. I know Rogers didn't play. Yeah, two weeks uh, later, okay, like, was- that, come on, like that's a big caveat, <laughs> man. It's like saying, hey, we beat the Chiefs and we held them to six points, but you're at Mahomes and Kelsey, they were at the bar, right? All right. You have to give me this one though. Holding the Cowboys when the Cowboys were hot to nine points. I mean Cowboys that offense was sizzling when we played them, and we held them to nine points. So, okay. So one thing I will say is that the Cowboys are the most streaky players I've uh, ever yeah. seen uh, as a good team. Like they will be, they'll drop fifty six points on a good team that one one game, and literally like five days later they will like put up three points against a really crappy team. So like you know. It, I, I don't give you that either. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Minus. <laughs> uh, well, I'm still going to go Chiefs. I mean, I'm going to be and a that's homer okay. here. And- you're, you're, you can't. It's like um, when you're, when Brady was with the Patriots, like, um, you, you, I'd never bet against Brady. Never. Sure. You know what I mean? yeah. And you're, we have the Super Bowls to prove it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, well, so far we have the Super Bowl visits. Uh, let's see if we can keep it up. Alien or Aliens? Ooh, I'll say aliens. Nice, Belichick or Brady? Oh, why are you, why are you hitting me with these hard <laughs> questions? Hard not questions. Can we just talk about the Navy and Marine Corps? <laughs> All right. Um, I would say Brady. All right. Pacific. I think Belichick is great. One of the greatest coaches uh, of all time, and deep, you know, deep knowledge about the game, but. You gotta always give credit to the guy who's doing it on the field, in my opinion, right? Like you can you can scheme it up, but you still gotta make the throw, right? So nope. I say Brady. No, nope. no one's here for my question answers to these questions. Uh, last year, I would have said Brady in a heartbeat. I think what the Patriots have done with look, I'm a I'm a closet Alabama fan. Roll Tide. Uh, my grand <laughs> my grandpa was a huge Alabama fan, and then his daughter went to Auburn, um, oh. <laughs> and so I thought. I didn't think Mac Jones would be, and he's not like, he's not having a rookie year or first year like Patrick Mahomes did. Oh, not, yeah. But his, Patrick like, Mahomes had like a historical year. <laughs> take that team. I think he's like, it also shows his greatness. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. I think it is. I, so if I had to choose, right, you know, if you had to choose your favorite child sort of thing, right, um, I would choose Brady. But, and that's part of, part of it is as me as a fan. But, you know, I mean, as an analyst, right, putting on my analyst hat, you can't have the dynasty without both of them, right? right. Uh, great quarterbacks don't mean great uh, franchises, right? They can help. They can increase your chances at it, right? Look at Aaron Rodgers. He's a great quarterback, right? But the Green Bay Packers have underachieved as a franchise, right? Um, you know what I mean? And I think you can only have as many Super Bowls as we do because of both Bill and Tom. Speaking of 2016 or 2007 Patriots teams. Oh, so the 2007 team literally is like a heartbreaker. So I've been watching man in the arena and that, that episode just like crushed my heart. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just so, it is soul crushing. Um, so I will say 
2007 Patriots were the better team and also the deepest heartbreak because of that reason. Yeah. Damn, we should have won that Super Bowl, man. Ah, the 07 ah. team was, was something, but that comeback in 16 is also almost... Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's as good as comeback or collapse, but... Yeah, so... Yeah, it's so... There's so many feelings to it, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, like, I remember the Falcons Super Bowl, and mm. I was... I had... Um, my voice was hoarse because I was screaming at the TV uh, <laughs> out of rage and out of joy, depending on what quarter we were in. Sure. Um, and same thing for the 2007 game. <laughs> right? Right, right. So, right. Yeah, I mean, it is, I honestly, if you ask me as a fan, like I would trade two Super Bowls for that perfect undefeated season in 07. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> best or favorite animal themed collegiate mascot. Oh, uh, I will show my bias and say the Golden Bears uh, because I'm a Berkeley uh, grad. Um, okay. But yeah. Oh. Hey, my dog is here. Hello. Nice. What, what's your dog's name? My dog's name is Winston. Awesome. 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 Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Bruins or Capitals? Oh, uh, I will say Capitals. Um, mainly because I have a colleague of mine who's just like, brainwashing me into loving the capitals and you're and takes me to the capital game so i was like okay mitch um is mitch reed over at no dice no glory he's a big capitals fan nice um let's see who is so you brought that you brought this up on twitter and we've got a few here to close out who is someone you would classify as the tom brady of war games oh i, I don't know honestly there you is, can pass. um so I think, and I think this is a bit of my football knowledge and my wargaming knowledge coming hand in hand. Is um, I think Tom is, is so leagues above everyone else um, that it's hard. Um, mm-hmm. I think Peter Perla is probably like the the progenitor, the the you know what I mean, the first to ever do it at the level that he did it, right? Um, and you know he's he's retired now or semi-retired. He spent most of his time at CNA uh, as a, a lead game designer. So I would say probably Peter Perla. But they're right now of those who are still doing it, right? Because Peter is semi-retired, uh, it's hard to say because like there's so much talent at the top, right? It is sure. Um, and people are doing different things in different ways. Like it's really exciting time to be in wargaming, in my opinion, because you have people like uh, Jackson Schneider at uh, Stanford and Eric Lindbergh over at MIT, who are doing really fascinating stuff in terms of experimental gaming uh, in academia, right? Like how to do wargaming for social science research. Um, you know, you have people in the defense, like you know, FFRDC, like think tank world, like you know Wong, uh, Eric Walters, who's just joined um, um, Ida, uh, Jeremy Sempiski, who's um, a colleague of mine at CNA, uh, and Justin Peachy uh, that I work with. But there are so many people like Ellie Bartels, Abby Dahl over at Rand. There's so much great talent at the top. Um, but my worry is like, not who the Tom Brady's are, but who are the young. Who are the Justin Herberts, sure. the John Burroughs of our field? Because we are like 
sort of top heavy and we don't have that mm. base, right? It's really like an inverted pyramid. And I worry about the next person up, like who's going to secede. Right? And my, my question is like, who's going to be the next uh, Patrick Mahomes or the Justin Herberts or the Joe Burrows of the world, right? Um, the Titans are still alive in our field, right? Um, it's the way I describe it, is like being in the age of, it's like being a physicist or a mathematician in the age of noon, right? Um, the Titans are still alive. And my question is, uh, who are the ones who carry sure. their, who stand on their shoulders next, right? Uh, and that's my concern. And that's one of the reasons I teach my course, right? To find those guys, to find my own uh, Patrick Mahomes somewhere out there. Man, I should have saved that question for last, <laughs> but I have a few left. Yeah, it's okay. No worries. Uh, Red Sox or Nationals, which just doesn't seem to live up to the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Red Sox or Nationals? Uh, yeah. I will say uh, Red Sox, uh, mainly because you know, what I mean, I'm not big on baseball, and I'll I'll throw my love out to Boston sports on that one. Okay. Um, if you were taking your own class, what mm. topic would you design a game on? Oh, um, off the top of my head, I would say the Imjin War, which is about um, Korea. Uh, Japan and China um, Mm -hmm. fighting a war when essentially uh, Japanese samurai um, after the warring states period essentially invade uh, Korea in their in their pursuit of invading China Uh, it's fascinating history uh, has a naval component has a land component it's really about a tale of the elephant versus the whale has a strong logistics focus partisan fighting as well Um, it's really interesting three-way sort of battle are there are there any war games to date? There are some it? miniature rule sets that look at uh, either tactical engagements uh, or some like you know, operational stuff, but mostly in the miniatures realm. I wanted to create a, like a in the box commercial style game that is, um, and it's one of those projects that's sort of on the shelf right now because of FMF and another game that I'm designing. But that's something I would love to do. Um, I would also love to do like a submarine game. Um, what other games would I love? I really, lo- I'm really loving the idea of like looking at logistics more and more, uh, both modern and like World War II s- s- style. So those are those are probably topics that I would dig into. Nice. I also love uh, anything Roman Roman history related. Okay, nice. I'm not a big ancient guy, but uh, I'm usually not. But there, I'm you know, as I read more and get interested. Like this is the great thing about books, like reading historical books or right, military history. Is that when you read, I'm just like, as a designer, I'm just like, oh, that's an interesting idea, right? Or interesting campaign, right? About how I, how would I design this battle? Like um, talking about going back to podcasts and sort of audio books. Like I love the great lecture series, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and I, yeah, I've been listening to a couple ones on like uh, the greatest you know battles uh, of history, greatest you know I mean. Um, um, operational campaigns and like your failures and stuff right and every time i'm listening to the history i'm just like ooh, how would i model this game how would i design it what kind of mechanics would i have what kind of constraints would i put on the players right uh and there's always a good you know mental exercise as a designer nice all right uh last question if you could require your students to read one book before they took your class what would it be oh one book huh oh that's so hard I would say uh, The Theory of Fun by Ralph Costner. Um, I say that because I have, 
I eliminated it from the syllabus because they just had too much reading. The students were dying. But that is one book I, I wish that they could read because it is a fantastic approach of what makes games fun and engaging and create that liminal experience of that magic circle that uh, makes you invested in cardboard pieces on a map, right? Or into a digital character or avatar, right? Um, like when you play Dungeons and Dragons and you've built this character over months or weeks or years sometimes, and that character is wounded or loses a limb or dies, like it, you feel something. And, and how is that? Um, how is that done, right? How, as from a design perspective, like recently, due to a colleague of mine who's a, a Marine major, he got me into Warhammer. So I love the Total War series. Uh, and you, if you follow me on Twitter, I fell into it like over the Christmas holiday break. And like, I, I remember playing Warhammer and it was like, I looked up and it was like six hours. I was like, what, what happened? <laughs> and I was like, right. where did Christmas yeah. go? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, and, and, and that, and the theory of fun as a book is a great, you know what I mean? Sort of introspection of what makes games fun. Right. And how do we incorporate fun both and from an educational perspective, from an entertainment perspective, uh, and as a design perspective. And I know James Therrett and Mike Dunn use that book in their own wargaming courses, but I unfortunately had to eliminate it from my course. So my students don't revolt. So, yeah, right, I right. mean. <laughs> nice. That's, uh, that's going to wrap it up. Um, thanks for, thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, thanks for answering all the questions. Um, you know, I, I intend them, I would never correct anyone on this. Like I intend them to be like, um, Brady Mahomes and then that's it. But I much more appreciate and enjoy the, uh, the deep, tr the rabbit trails. So. Hey, uh, you know what I mean? When it comes to design and football, you know, you pretty, pretty much hit my sweet spots and which things I will ramble on about. So I'm more than happy to man. do those. Um, no offense. I will probably not listen to this. <laughs> No, yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> Mainly yeah. because I like the notion of listening. So I've never listened to any podcast I've been on. Not one. Not one. Uh, because the notion of like listening to myself speak about anything is like horrific to me. It's just horrifying. I love to, I like, you know, I, it's not to say your podcast, right? I've never listened to any of them. I've done a bunch of them. Um, and I've never listened to my own because I, I don't know. Because I think you, uh, I think we are often the hardest critics of our own voices and wow. You catch your verbal ticks, and it will drive, drive it will just drive me nuts. While you listen to someone else, and you're more forgiving, right? You're like, Absolutely. oh, okay, they say um or whatever phrase that they pause for. Um, as as I say um, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. I think I you know what I mean. That's why I also don't record my lectures, right, or listen to any of my own podcasts. But you know what I mean. I will trust you that it is good and it's not terrible. <laughs> No, it was fantastic. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I will say that the hardest thing I did was listen back to my early podcasts, and I still listen to catch errors, but also I just do this for fun, so I'm not oh, yeah. too critical of myself. Um, it was great. I really enjoyed it. It'll go up. And uh, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me mainly on Twitter, uh, which is just my name, Sebastian Bay. Uh, because I'm not super creative, but usually I'm pretty engaging with people who follow me uh, and usually try to answer all the questions and curious about wargaming. So you can follow me as I teach uh, my Naval Academy students this year, and I'll post photos of their games and their development throughout. You know what? I had a I had a question for you, and I was like, yeah. I won't forget to ask that. It was going to be, uh, 
What's your go-to GIF as a response? What was that? What's your go-to GIF to use as a response on Twitter? Like, what's your favorite GIF response? Because you're a master of using GIFs. Oh, yeah. So I love GIFs um, because I feel like they're so um, (laughs) interesting and fun to use. And honestly, I wish I could respond to some of my work emails with uh, uh, GIFs. Honestly, I would. Uh, (laughs) And um, most of the time, it's the one that comes to mind is the one from Mulan where Mushu is like, I will have my vengeance, right? Um, Mainly because when you're talking about games and if you lost and and stuff, like that's the one I go to. I'm like, yes, vengeance. Another one is probably also game related, which is uh, from the Powerpuff Girls where um, Bubbles is like, says like no mercy and like is punching yeah. somebody and that's also a very common one i use um and a part and the third one is probably so uh, someone made this gif for me uh was where oprah is like sort of pointing out when she's like handing out cars it's like you get a war game you get a war game <laughs> yeah, i also do that one. one so those are probably my two three um Mushu, uh bubbles and uh oprah so it's a very odd mix awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah i use lots of gifs and you say GIFs? Yes, GIFs. All right, I know it's supposed to be GIFs. Stop. I know it's supposed to be GIFs. Just like, but you know, but as an American, I say GIFs because you know, we say everything wrong. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, uh, I'll show you some dates that we're doing um, FMF. And if you have time to jump on, feel free to come.